Welcome to Our Plant Stories, where we dig into the stories that plants tell us about people and places. Every time I follow a plant story, I seem to find multiple threads that connect that plant to so many different people and places. And quite quickly, when I began to make the podcast, I realised I really wanted to follow those threads and, stepping back to a plant metaphor, make some offshoot episodes. So here's the plan. In this first series, there are 12 plant stories. The final one will be next week, and it's a spider plant story. But then, on the first Friday of every month between now and the second series of stories, there will be offshoots. I thought it'd be fun to introduce one of those offshoots today so you can see what I mean. This one came from the fig tree episode, because I received a message from Nick Stewart-Smith, who had looked after a very special fig tree in London. It's just wonderful for me to walk in to work every day and that that is what greets you each day. This amazing fig tree that's been waiting there quietly all through the night and you feel not exactly that you're comrades. It's kind of, it is kind of a bit like that. You have this relationship with the tree and every day as I leave work I walk past it too. Those things stay with you. They're just things you, I would, would never forget. That fig tree is at Lambeth Palace, where Nick Stewart-Smith was head gardener for seven years, leaving it in late summer 2022. He has more than 20 years' experience as a head gardener at three very different gardens. Overbeck's in Devon for the National Trust, Chequers in the Chilterns for Number 10, and Lambeth Palace in London for the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is also now an author with a new book called The Thousand-Year-Old Garden, Inside the Secret Garden at Lambeth Palace, just published. So I went to meet him in that garden. It's literally just across the bridge from the Palace of Westminster, so air traffic is part of the background sound of the garden. We're in the main courtyard at Lambeth Palace and we're standing in front of um, a very special tree. This is a, the famous Lambeth Palace fig tree, Ficus carica, white Marseille. Um, probably one of the most, well, maybe I would say this because of my love for this place, but it's probably one of the most famous fig trees in the world. And it's probably one of the most famous things about Lambeth Palace as well. Um, it has a long history here. If you look carefully in under the canopy there, you can see it's actually not one tree, it's three that appear to have fused together. They came back to this garden hundreds of years ago in, I think, 1565 when Cardinal Pole was Archbishop here, the last Catholic Archbishop of Lambeth Palace. He brought it back as one of a number of gifts from the Vatican. It was given by the Pope. So just imagine that journey. Um, the, these three cuttings probably, feeble little cuttings of, of this fig tree came back all the way across the Italian landscape in a horse and cart, then got in a boat and made it the way across the sea, eventually came to the mouth of the Thames somewhere in Kent or Essex, somewhere there, and then got on a barge with all these other treasures that had been brought back, these insignificant branches of this tree, and they came all the way up the Thames to eventually reach the dock, the jetty at Lambeth Palace everyone tired, probably including the fig cuttings. And I would imagine they were thrown towards the 
gardener of the day, he would have been standing there, dutifully, waiting, with instruction to do something with these things, and nobody probably would have expected to ever see them ever again. So that was nearly 500 years ago, but here we are today, and as you can see, the figure's still going strong, and so it's an absolutely stunning thing. And over those 500 or so years, think of all the different things this tree has witnessed. Black Death, two world wars, the parts of the, of the palace were actually hit by firebombs during the Second World War, civil war, various uprisings, pandemic, and still the tree survives and goes on and on and on. And there's no reason to think it won't be here for hundreds more years because it's as strong as ever. From time to time, I do take cuttings from it. So that this is done, the traditional way to do this with a fig is probably the best way, which is, and this is probably true of many plants, is to do what the plant seems to be telling you it wants to do anyway. With a fig, you often see it will rest its, uh, its branches on the ground. So, and when it rests, often it's sort of like their elbows and the tree's getting pretty tired. And so it just wants to have a breather and puts the, the elbow down the ground, which is its branch. And at the point of the elbow, new roots often form. So as gardeners, we, did, we would describe this as layering. And it's something that we can manipulate and, and do ourselves. We would take a flexible stem, bend it, and then pin it down with something useful, like a, some sort of hook or you know, something like a croquet hoop, something along those lines, if you happen to have a croquet hoop knocking around in the shed, which someone like here, obviously, we have various croquet hoops, as you'd expect. Then you maybe wait a year. You, what you do is you, you, you pin the branch to the ground so it's making contact and will form roots. And then you come back in a year's time and cut each side of where that branch is, is pinned so that you've got a little, a little branch with roots. And then you put it up and that's all there is to it. And what you've done is you've helped the tree to do what the tree's trying to do, which is increase itself. And you've helped it in a way that the tree was going to do it anyway. You know, there are seeds and things that the tree has and, that, and it will self-seed itself as well, but plants can be very clever like that. They'll have more than one way of propagating themselves. It won't just be through seeds. It, there will be other things it does. And in this case, the, the plant, the fig, can layer itself. So um, it's a beautiful thing, really, to, to be able to do that. Um, so I've done seven in my time here. Um, probably the one I'm personally most pleased with is the one I did first to David Attenborough um, which was given to him as a gift when he visited here in 2020 um, and that so he was thrilled with that as you'd expect and planted it in his garden further down the river from here and um, he wrote to me recently, I'd written to him about something else and he wrote back to me a, a lovely personal letter I'd said in my letter, you won't remember who I am. And he said, how could I forget who you are when I look at that tree you did for me every day? So that was, it was a lovely thing for me personally to hear that. And, to, and, um, and also because I think my whole career has been working in nature and around nature, around plants. And I think if it hadn't been through seeing his programs as a child. I may well not have gone in that direction, but it opened up doors and windows and everything for me of a, of a world where there were 
there was green, there were plants, there were living things, there were insects, there were fascinating creatures that to be found in the undergrowth. And so my aim really as a gardener for all these years has been to help that and to, to allow those things to happen, to not be too controlling, to allow the wild to have a place in a garden and not just to push it to the perimeter or even outside the garden walls. Um, that hasn't always been a popular thing, but that is really what I believe in. And what I've found in, in the gardens I've worked in, I've worked in three major gardens throughout across 25 years, and I found that the wildlife, even within a few months of you putting, changing the way the garden was gardened, the wildlife just flourishes and increases. You've got more butterflies, more bees. Plants are self-seeding around quite happily. What's it like to garden in a garden with this much history? I think most of the gardens I've, I've worked in had fairly long and interesting histories. Um, I've, I, was, I've been, I was here for seven years and I was at Chequers in the Chilterns, which is um, now the Prime Minister's country retreat, but that was a estate and garden of more five, six hundred years history and quite a, an amazing place. Before that, I was for ten years for National Trust in a, a really magnificent garden um, on the Devon coast called Overbex, a subtropical place full of wonders. Um, so I've always worked in sort of sites that had heritage or, for want of a better word, or important his historical background. Um, so, what's it like to work in a garden of history? It's that it's a thing that you have to always remember, and this is a, to me a really good thing. You're only a small link in a very long chain of gardeners, and everything you do relates to all the people that have strived and worked here before you, and all the people that will come in the future to work on the garden and, and be gardeners here as well. And so it's you have to be humble before that and I, th I think that's a good thing it is, it's not a place really for ego or to try and assert assert yourself too much you can have your own vision and as as, as I think I have done I've, I've done things in a much more um, flowing and free way and allowed the plants some freedom rather than um, obliging them to do what I want them to do um, so that, that is, it is possible to have your own way of doing things as well within the historical context but never lose sight of the long, long history. This, this garden is, a, is over a thousand years so all the different things that have happened here, all the different people who've come through, all the different amazing plants, all the different wildlife, it's all part of it. That the things, the things, the people, the plants, the wildlife, the creatures that are no longer here, they're still a part of it. So it, you, you carry that with you through every minute of every working day and it's a wonderful thing. Um, it sound, that might sound like a heavy weight to be dragging around with you while you're trying to do your work, but it's not. It's, um, it's a very freeing, liberating thing in a strange way because you know that you have a responsibility to everything else, but you, you're, you're, just, you're just one small part of a very big picture and you just do your best within within that 
Um, and you do your best for the garden. Um, do you feel very aware of those previous gardeners? I do, yes. I think some people wouldn't, but yes, I do. I, I feel... I feel their presence here sometimes um, and not in a sinister or haunting way. It's just more that, that they are here as well. I think that does happen with gardens and gardeners that they never quite leave. Um, even if they're many hundreds of miles away or maybe no longer even alive, they never really quite leave. And this this is one of the things that gardens are for us. They're, they go on and on and the cycles are not the kind of cycles that we sort of think of where we're born and we have a linear line linear track really through through our time it's just everything goes in circles and cycles and nothing ever ends things things might reach um, a pause or go in a different direction but it never really ends it just evolves and goes off in a different direction I mean it's been really fascinating things we've learned more recently about mycelium and how that is a communication system and how that's been really on planet Earth since the beginning of life and will be here long after, say, for example, our species perhaps may no longer be here. Um, the mycelium will, will still be there. So it's that kind of eternal but constantly evolving and changing and altering but always there and that might sound a bit fancy and a bit bewildering but that is part of the reason why I'm a gardener because I want I wanted to experience the cycles and the and I want that's what I want so um, I don't want it to be I've got to start here I've got to do this this this, and this and then I'm going to reach this point of achievement and conclusion a garden should never arrive. It should always, in my opinion, I know that's maybe not a popular opinion, but that's my opinion. It should never arrive, and it's 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 all, it's not that it's it's all about the journey. It's not that. It's to do with a series of arriving at different points, but that's not the destination because there's no destination. There's lots of different points of arriving at places, and that's great, or sometimes not so great. But that that's kind of how. For me, that's how that works. So it's so it's um, it's it's constant, and you just it's just life force constantly, and life force that, that reconfigures all the time. So it might be your co- the compost heap, you know, the, you know the way that if you go to visit a stately home or a fine posh garden, often you never see the compost heap. It's hidden away somewhere, and that to me is just so bizarre. It's like the compost heap is it's the center of life it's where everything breaks down and starts all over again and you go into a compost heap a good compost heap and it's full of life and it's it's often quoted and it is true and it's a brilliant thing is that in a teaspoon of healthy soil or compost you might find three billion at least living organisms just in a teaspoon that's more stars than you'll see in a starlit sky and that that's very humbling and then you think actually I'm part I'm also helping to make these comps I'm helping to make sure this soil stays good and healthy I'm not doing terrible things to it by you know putting chemicals down as a shortcut something something awful like that I'm just uh, I'm 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 also helping to look after the soil for, for 
for the garden, for the plants, for, for everything that's alive here. That's part of what my particular duty is. And so, um, so it's already that, it's, it's time. The time, time is not necessarily what we think it is, in my, in my experience. It's, it's, it, it, it's fluid and moves around. And I think, in my opinion, the trees and a lot of the other plants maybe have a better grip on that than we do. And uh, we often interfere with them and ruin their cycles. And maybe, maybe that, hopefully, maybe as time moves forward, as, t- as the days move forward, that that will happen less and less. And, and we realise that we're actually just part of this nature as well. We don't rule it. We don't control it. But we can be part of it. And that's, that's an amazing thing to do. Tell me about the book. What was the inspiration behind the book? Well, the book came about really in sort of quite difficult circumstances. Um, as everybody knows, the world kind of shut down in um, spring of 2020 and our lives changed in ways that we could never have foreseen. And I think we're now sort of sitting here now, we've moved away from the courtyard and we're sitting here now in a little orchard area and the sun's dappled sun is going through the trees and everything is right with the world and it's easy to forget how terrifying that time was because we had no idea what was going to happen and leadership seemed fairly invisible at the time and I don't think many would dispute that um, and it was a, a tough time so I was told not to come to work I'm a gardener so I am I am not going to leave the garden if I can. I so I argue that I do not have to go near anybody. And I do not have to go indoors. I can. I'm going to walk all the way there, the, 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 the three miles from my home in Peckham to Lambeth. I'll walk there every day, and I'll walk back. I won't go near anybody. I got a bike in the end, so it wasn't so bad. But the first the first days were were walking, and it was hard. <laughs> it's hard to do a full day in the garden after you've walked three miles, you know, hard streets, and then. Do a full day and then walk on hard streets another three miles. It was, it wasn't great, but it meant I could carry on gardening, and I was a bit distressed that the volunteers were going through terrible. Some of them are vulnerable people, um, and have various health issues, and I was concerned that they were going through a very tough time. So I started writing these little diaries for them with pic- colourful pictures of the garden in it to sort of lift spirits, really. And so that sort of grew and grew. And then it was just sent to 20 or so volunteers here. And then it sort of got out and it started going to staff and started going to other people. And Archbishop Justin was sending it to people. And so I'd get all these strange emails from people I'd never heard of, saying, asking questions or saying, saying something about the, the post I just... Effectively, it was like, you know, as people would know on social media, it's like doing a post, but obviously they were much longer. You know, it was a, a thousand words rather than a hundred. So it grew there and then... Um, one of the, the last tours I've done hundreds of tours here guided tours and one of the last ones I did was with a wonderful couple called Claire and Sean and Claire is a writer herself and after the tour she said to me you should, you should write some of this down I was going oh, oh, no one wants to read that she said well I think she'd have to try write it down and so that was really it so then I sort of started to put my ideas together some of the ideas were things I had done to try and keep the volunteers going but there were other things as well thoughts I just had about gardening in general about this place in particular um, and just 
general enjoyment really as well you know that's a kind of important part of it, it shouldn't be a it's not a sort of thing that um is going to be a heavy weight for people to have to drag around reading my amazing thoughts so um it's just just that really that's how it came about and then i didn't i was i'm, I'm a gardener i have no idea how books or publishing works so i i, I went online and found out that what you have to do is you do not ever, ever approach a publisher. That is a very serious offence. What you do is you have to try and find a literary agent, and if you're lucky, they might look at you. So, so I was really lucky. Um, I only wrote to three literary agents, and two of them ignored me. <laughs> and one, Kirsty, uh, wrote to me and said, this is interesting. And so, um, she said, have you got any more that you can tell me about this, this, this thing, this Lambeth Palace thing, this garden? So I said, um, yes, yeah, I'll send you, she said, send me a few pages. So I did. She said, this is still interesting. So, um, have you got any more that I can read? So I said, well, actually, I've written a whole sort of little book. And so she said, really? She said, well, nobody ever does that. I said, well, I said, I'll send it to you if you like. She said, yes, please do. And so I sent it to her and very quickly she read the entire thing and just said, I loved it. So um, let's let's try and do something. So um, I I said to you before we started recording, Kirsty, in my opinion, she's way out of my league and it's so like, um, I think she's she's absolutely brilliant and uh, brilliant at her job. And um, so it's... It's been it's been a fantastic experience to have her help me along this way, and uh, that was it really. So so she found a publisher, you know. Eventually, it wasn't wasn't easy because I'm I'm such an unknown quantity. So and everything, it was a fascinating process. You know, for me, a gardener all my life, suddenly I was thrown into a completely different world of editors, designers, um, agents, um, and. It was just really fascinating, and um, so so that's it. And so the, the book will be coming out in June. What do you hope readers will take away from your book? Well, I hope they'll be entertained. I, I know that sounds like a superficial aim, but I, I don't think it is at all. I hope they'll be entertained and get some pleasure from it and... Um, I hope it maybe may, will make them think about their own green space, whatever it is. Whether it's a, one of the things I was keen to say is, look at me, I work in one of the oldest gardens in the world. It's huge. Um, it's been here forever. Um, but however big your garden, however small, however new, however old, you can still, you can still interact with it in a way that is, is going to be beneficial all the natural world that happens to be around you whether it's in the middle of Liverpool whether it's in some glorious um, Devon moor, moorland it's like there's, there's still the thing of put nature in the centre of things don't just keep thinking it's something that you is there to please you or to entertain you or to for you to exploit in some way you know whether it's for pleasure or for, for whatever it is it's just Really, that is what I'd hope they take away from it. Which is, I know that's probably quite a, not an unusual thing to say. 
When we were walking around the garden, you talked about having a dialogue with plants and giving them a voice. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, this is very important to me. Um, what I mean is that when I was doing my training, when I was a young child gardener, I was always told that you must control the space, you, you must control it and you must keep it in order, no dandelions, and so on and so on. Lawn must be pristine, precise shaded green, cut to the millimetre, all of these things. And so I, I'm not, I, not that I'm a rebel, but I rejected all of that really straight away. I would never, I've never used chemicals and would never use them. I would never ask anybody else to do them. I think, I think they're basically a wrong thing. They should not be anywhere near gardening, really. It's not, not that arguments for agriculture where perhaps you can increase crop yield through using artificial means or factory, whatever, made things. Gardening? Why? Just to say that your roses are a little bit bigger or something. So I, I know that I know with some people that's a very unpopular view, but that that's always how I've worked. So um, so the thing about the dialogue is you is me. I am in a conversation all the time with the garden. So the garden speaks to me in a way, and the garden will do things that the garden wants to do. So if the garden wants to grow bronze fennel, or the garden wants to grow snapdragons or opium poppies, it will do that. And okay, I might think, okay, I'm not having it, not having this. That wasn't in my plan. We're going to stick to my plan. And I might go around and remove them all and just adjust things. But my thing is rather that you just let, let a bit happen. You be a bit permissive and you let things flow. But you do intervene from time to time. And maybe there's too many poppies this year. Maybe that's just a bit too much. So you maybe reduce them a bit. But your ideas change all the time and accept that, that your ideas are not fixed. The garden is teaching you and telling you all the time. And so you interact with it. You do things that alter the garden, inevitably. But also the garden does things that alter you. And it's, I think, that's a much more joyful relationship to have than this bullying relationship of constantly trying to beat this green space into submission and to be what you want it to be. Because in the end, it might look that way in photographs, it never will be quite that way. It will never be that perfect green lawn, really. You know, you maybe get it maybe once for one day, just one day you might get it. But other days, you know, it's going to be little bits of green that aren't quite green, little weeds coming in that you can't quite get to without leaving a hole, all the rest of it. So, so I'm sorry if that sounds dogmatic or, or whatever, but I, I'm actually, it's actually to do with freedom on both sides and not being quite so controlling and um, just enjoying the conversation because in the end that's what it is. And my belief, which may be wrong, is that gardens are talking all the time and we just, sometimes we just refuse to listen or don't know how to listen. And that is part of what that dialogue is, is actually being able to listen and think, I do not agree with that. Or actually, you know what, that's good. That's good, I like that. And so then you can, you can do something. And then I just think it's, I think that's quite fulfilling.
Nick Stewart Smith's book, The Thousand Year Old Garden, is available now. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. So that is an offshoot, and there will be more of them. The first Friday of every month. But do join me next week for one more plant story in this first series. Jane Perone, who has the On The Ledge Houseplant podcast, has a lovely story about spider plants, which takes us to South Africa. You can always contact me with your plant story, sally at ourplantstories.com. Music